So we are in a, a, a gospel series uh, through the book of Acts. And a few weeks ago, I said something that I may be taking back, which is that we're not going to be preaching the whole book. That's probably not going to happen. Uh, I've just been... We'll see. There, there may be small sections that we, um, that we pass over. But... I'm definitely preaching a lot more of this book than I had anticipated I was going to do. It is just, it, it fits together too well. And it was written by a doctor. So, A, I'm glad we could read his handwriting, unlike most today. But aside from that, doctors tend to think very carefully as to how things are put together. So, uh, trusting in God's inspiration of Luke, the physician who wrote this, we are going to, as much as we can, um, digest as much of this book as we can. So thank you for uh, being with us for that. This is, as I said, a book written by Luke. It's his second book. It's a two-volume set. First one was called The Gospel According to Luke. And the second one is uh, the book of Acts. And Luke is very careful in how he introduces the books. In the first one, he says to his friend Theophilus, he says, I'm writing these things down so that you will know what happened. I'm writing an orderly account so that you will know the truth of the things that have been said. And then in Acts, he says, I'm now writing you this second book, Theophilus, so that you will know that what Jesus began to do is being continued on. So I love that connection there that in the first book, it's the works of Christ. And in the second book, he says, that was the work that he began. In other words, the the book of Acts is the continuation of the works of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a continuous uh, ministry. It's a continuous word about Christ. There's not a sharp distinction, even though in our minds there may be, with Christ going into heaven and suddenly the apostles, you know, kick it up a notch or two. But it's a continuous work of Christ. There was no ministry before Christ and there would have been no ministry if he had not gone into heaven. In fact, the ministry of the apostles depended on the very fact that he went into heaven because he said, if I do not go, then I cannot send my helper to you. And through the helper, he promised the disciples that they would do far greater things than Jesus had done. That's an amazing promise. And so the ascension of Christ only perpetuated the work that he was doing in the world. So as we through, study the gospel, of, the gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, however you want to call it, all we're seeing is the continued ministry of Jesus Christ. And in fact, a much more effective and, and broadly impacting ministry of Christ. So, before we dive into this passage, I do want to read a section from a related passage from the Gospel of Matthew. It's not from Luke, but it's from Matthew. And, and as we get this, we're going to go into Acts and, and, and we'll see how these things fit together. Jesus is telling a parable in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 and 33, I'd like to read for you, 33 to 46. Here another parable, said Jesus. This is in Jerusalem. That's very important. This is inside Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching this. I'm not baiting and switching. I know this is like, this could be like whiplash for you, but these, these do go together and Jesus' words are going to help us filter and understand Luke's words better. So Jesus is in Jerusalem where Peter and John are preaching right now, only earlier. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard 
and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went away to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have our inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches in a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruit of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those are the words of Christ in the city of Jerusalem uh, mere months earlier than this preaching and conversion story is happening in the book of Acts. So a couple weeks ago, we preached a story about mass conversion. Peter preaches and 3,000 are converted on the spot. The church explodes with new believers. And we cannot preach mass conversion and gospel success without preaching gospel opposition when they happen in the same chapter in a book or, or next to each other in the book. As Luke writes it, you cannot have mass success without the pairing reality sometimes of mass opposition. Dustin I, or Dylan was praying this morning just about the persecuted church around the world. So important to be mindful as we worship in the comfort of these theater chairs that this would just be unheard of in many places in the world and we sometimes don't understand the concept of true opposition. Again, we, we tend to think the government taking away funding from us is some great form of persecution. Uh, we are a very small slice of human history where that would be our definition of persecution and opposition. And so our eyes and our minds are sobered by the realities presented in Acts. After many are converted, there is difficult opposition. And this, this is a very mild example, but it's the beginning. It's the tip of the sword in many ways um, that, the, that many would thrust against the church. And so this does frame for us the beginning of gospel opposition. And there are basically, again, five things that we can discover about opposition and us as the church and how we should think about it and what we should do about it. Number one is that the gospel attracts opposition. Okay, so that's sort of maybe obvious or on the surface, but that's a reality we need to embrace. So how does this begin? While they were speaking to the people, remember this is Peter and John. They had just healed a paralytic, a guy who had never walked in his life. He got up, praised God, went into the temple with him, drew a whole bunch of attention because of the great work of God. Awe and wonder filled the whole place because God was at work. You would think this is just the scene of, like, now let's just have an extended worship service, right? Like, isn't that what should follow here? But it doesn't. As they were speaking to the people, because Peter breaks out a sermon, and this is what we went on last week. As they were, Peter was teaching and preaching, 
the priests and the captain of the temple of the Sadducees came upon them, tread upon them, kind of broke into the circle and messed up the service. It would be like somebody literally running in here through one of our entrances and literally stopping and interjecting harsh questioning, demanding answers, demanding a reason, demanding a justification for what's going on. I mean, even that would rattle us. Wouldn't we just be blown away if somebody came in here demanding some kind of answer for what we were doing? And this is so mild. And yet, even now, if we put ourselves in those shoes, we would be so rattled. So, so consider Peter and John as they're preaching, and they came upon them. Verse 2, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. And so the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Uh, they didn't just leave Peter and John to conduct their little Christian conference. All right, so like when's your breakout sessions? You know, which part of the temple would you like to use? You know, we've got great, uh, great cafeteria. Uh, they did not open hospitality to these new converts and to this Christian ministry. They have no uh, regard for letting the Christian message spread, especially in the public area of the temple. Remember, this is inside the great Jewish temple, the seat of, Christ, of, of God's actual presence in the Old Testament. There's already a tremendous sense of tension in Jerusalem. We have to keep that in mind. Christ has already been killed with, with great fanfare, with great commotion. Remember, it happened during the Passover feast when Jerusalem was packed. And the leaders didn't want to do it during Passover. They had tried to avoid that. But they could not wait to get rid of Christ. It was such a threat to them uh, that they had to get rid of him. And he went through, remember, Christ went through three separate trials, none of which found any guilt in him. And so there's a tremendous sense of tension. The disciples then go and hide, afraid of what might happen because Christ has been crucified. I mean, there, there's no sense of victory. There's no sense of um, consolation for anybody here. There's tension between those who had killed Christ and, and his remaining followers. And now the Holy Spirit has been sent right in the middle of Jerusalem. And now Jesus' followers are now empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit, released into Jerusalem. Things are tense for sure. And so the leaders, hearing that Christ is being proclaimed once again in the temple, were greatly annoyed. They did not come to take notes or learn, but they came because they were greatly annoyed, these Christians. Now, why were they annoyed? It's right in our text. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were teaching and proclaiming. Teaching and proclaiming is the greatest weapon of the Christian church. It, it, is, it is the sharpest edge of any of our tools. Teaching and preaching and proclaiming is what frees people from darkness. It's what releases people from manipulation and bondage and deception. Satan hates teaching, clear teaching, almost more than anything else because his greatest weapon is darkness and deception. He's the father of all lies. And what's the opposite of a lie but the truth? And so all of Satan's systems will first attack and glory in the deterioration of clear and good teaching of the truth. 
They were greatly annoyed because of the teaching. I mean, if a guy gets healed, fine, but don't start teaching and proclaiming Christ that there is a hope, that there is a resurrection. We have to remember that this preaching is going on in the eye of the storm, the seat of Jewish authority. The very nation, as we read last week, with the help of its leaders, with the help of Rome, that crucified Christ. Now, inside their temple, not only are they being indicted for crucifying Christ, but they are proclaiming a resurrection from that death. That God had glorified him. Remember that you had crucified Christ, yet God has glorified him and raised him from the dead. And so this is, a, this is an indictment on them because if God has vindicated the servant that they killed, they're in trouble. And so they're greatly annoyed, which might be an understatement about the proclamation that Christ has truly been raised. That he's been raised. The sense here that we need to understand is that there are two systems head to head here. One proclaims the glory of man and the other proclaims the glory of God. And these two systems cannot and will not occupy the same space. They do not share a platform. They are not co-equally valuable or even true. One must usurp the other. One must be destroyed and done away with. And we read in the scriptures that God says, I will share my glory with no one else. And if you are part of a system that glorifies man and diminishes God, then your system will be wrecked. Your worldview will be destroyed. It will be dismantled. You will be found wanting. So these two systems are at odds and they're literally facing off head to head here. The captain of the temple and the Sadducees are going head to head with Jesus' own apostles. So, one first major principle comes out from this part of the text, and that is that living for Christ, seeking to witness to his reality, will put you at odds with whatever the prevailing system in the world is. Now, for Peter and John, it was unbelieving Judaism. Unbelieving Judaism is not our greatest hurdle here in Smith Falls. There's not a large, as far as I'm aware, not a large swath of unbelieving Jews who are opposing our gospel. But there is a prevailing system against which we are at odds. That much we need to be aware of. Now, in different spheres, it may be different things as well. Maybe it's an unbelieving spouse who, who really prevents it and discourages your private worship or your public worship. Maybe it's a job in which you work where your Christian morals are not allowed to be exercised or your conscience is not allowed to be exercised. Maybe it's the prevailing thought in Canadian society uh, totally against the teaching of children about who God is. In some way, our faith is going to put us at odds with the prevailing system in the world. That much is true. Why? Because we learn in scriptures later that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and that he's at work in the sons of disobedience which means that anything that is not Christ's anything that has not been submitted to Christ is working against him it is a system against which the gospel must come and so our belief will put us at odds with the prevailing system in the world let it not surprise you when it's not cool to be a Christian when it's not accepted when it's not celebrated when it's not advertised, when you're not given freedom to express it or promote it, 
Let us not be surprised. Sometimes our hopes are really dashed when we realize the Canadian government is not all that Christian. And we wonder, why, why aren't we being served? Why aren't we being given? Because our belief puts us at odd with the prevailing system of the world. Now, this text leaves no doubt as to which one does prevail. Many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of those men came to about 5,000. This is massive church growth. This is massive revival. This is massive spiritual conversion. Destruction of the deception of the enemy. Satan's kingdom is falling, crumbling before his very eyes as the spirit is given and as the ministry of the church begins. Satan's deception immediately begins to to deteriorate as soon as the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Which system prevails? Well, so far about 5,000 have believed. Anywhere in the world, a revival of 5,000 is a huge deal. It would be more than half of this town. It would be more than half of Smith's Falls. Which system has victory? Friends, the church is not meant to know systematic defeat. Satan has been bound at the cross. He has been, his, his works of deception have been destroyed. He is no longer able to deceive the nations as he once was. Scripture teaches us that now he's like a lion prowling around looking for an individual to devour. The work of the gospel is expanding and growing and winning. I want to read for you uh, Colossians 1, 3, and 6, 3 to 6 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed, listen to this, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. This is the reality of the gospel. It is increasing, bearing fruit, winning souls, having victory. Does the gospel face opposition? Of course it does. Of course it does. But which system prevails? 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There is nothing about your message that will win you sophistication awards in think tanks. We do not preach a sophisticated message. We preach a crucified king who will have his kingdom. And it says in 1 Corinthians that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's evidence of this here in Acts chapter 4. So 5,000 are saved. So number one, the gospel will and does attract opposition. Number two, we can answer in truth. Verses 5 to 9. On the next day, so they arrested Peter. Now, I'm not going to make a huge deal of that because uh, they were released the next day. Not that I would like to spend a night in jail, but um, again, this is not one of the hallmark moments of persecution of the church. It's just they arrested him and they had no reason to hold him. So on the next day, the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were with the high priestly family. Sounds a little bit like the mafia to me. And when they had set them in their midst, this is John and Peter, 
They inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed by, done to a crippled man, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel. So, first thing we have to notice is that these, look at the hardness of heart that is inherent in these men. They don't come to the apostles and say, so, so how can we be saved? How can we be healed? How can we know God? They don't recognize their own darkness. They don't recognize their own inner death. They don't recognize their need for salvation. Instead, they come and they basically say, how dare spiritual revival break out in God's temple? They're so hard-hearted. How dare spiritual revival break out here? In God's holy halls. And they say, by what power, by what name have you done this? As if they're inquiring. Oh, let us, let us seek the truth with you guys. Let us walk a journey of truth together. Now it's interesting because I think this is, uh, they, I think they already know that they've proclaimed it in Christ's name. This is why they're so annoyed. But this is the same type of questioning that Jesus himself faced. What's the acceptable form of authority that you're using? Why don't you tell us how you're doing this and we'll let you know whether or not it's acceptable, whether or not it's in the category of things that we approve of in our society. Jesus faced the same questions. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority? Who gave you the right to heal the sick and forgive the sinner? In other words, we know that these things belong to God alone. And so we want you to confess with your mouth that you claim to be from God. Because then we can stone you. In John 10.32, they come to stone Jesus. And Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you now going to stone me? Which one of my good works am I getting stoned for right now? Was it the feeding was it the healing? Was it the wine? I could kind of see maybe some people getting ruffled up about that. Is he going to stone me for the wine? Jesus' ministry was filled with good works and he was hated. The apostles now healing this man. By what authority, by what name have you healed this man? So that we can convict you of blasphemy. Basically, if you fall in line with a convicted criminal, you become a co-conspirator and you can be found under the same penalty as him. Oh, and how does Peter answer? Let it be known to you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Remember, they're already annoyed about the whole resurrection thing. Peter says, the one who you crucified, the one who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Is this offensive? Absolutely it's offensive. This, this is exactly what is, the is, Israelite leaders did not want to hear. He's reminding them that they are the perpetrators of this crime. And he is reminding them that he was raised from the dead. By the way, your efforts were futile. By the way, you wasted your time. By the way, you opposed God. He is hitting them in the most painful spot that they can be hit. There is gospel opposition, but God's people can answer in truth. Not seeking to offend, but seeking to speak the truth. 
Peter stands firm upon his witness to Christ. He had proclaimed this to the people. Remember, this is two different little sermons, one to the people who had just gathered around who were there. Then when the leaders heard of it, they came and gathered. So Peter has kind of two mini messages, one to the people, and now he's speaking to the leaders. And he stands firm upon his previous witness. He says, you crucified Christ, God raised him from the dead, and in his name you may be saved. And when the leaders come by, do you think Peter felt a little bit of temptation to change his story just a little bit? The leaders are here now. These are the ones who were actually there at Jesus' trial. These are the ones who actually wanted Jesus dead. These are the ones who have power to do something to me. I would probably be tempted to just shape the message just a little bit. Something like, well, yeah, we were talking about Jesus when I healed him, but, but, we, but we all know that Jesus is dead. And, and so we, we, uh, we like the teaching of Jesus and we're just trying to do something good here. Maybe the authorities would have been a lot more receptive to that. But instead, Peter stands firm upon his witness. He answers boldly that Christ is the one who had done it. Remember, if Christ was still dead, Christ cannot be at work healing people. It's one or the other. Christ is doing this work because God had glorified and raised him. So what's the principle? When opposition comes, don't roll over and die. Don't do it in your own strength. Recognize here that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. As you seek the Lord, yield yourself to God's power within you. Yield yourself to the Spirit which indwells you, which will prepare you for moments like this. The flip side of it is that we, we could go on and, and inoculate ourselves with entertainment and with news and with the busyness of life and we can be indifferent to the work of God and when we're faced with opposition we can be completely useless. That's the alternative. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you don't love God. But how on earth are we ever going to face opposition if we are not first filled with His Word and yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit within us? This is a convicting message for me because do you not think I, as a pastor in the 21st century might face gospel opposition? Am I ready to answer? Am I ready to speak with seasoned words that are loving, yet truthful? Truthfully offensive, even? Will we recognize that opposition is coming, and will we be prepared? Will we be prepared? Peter was because he had no other ambition other than to follow Christ. He had no other ambition. When, when a bunch of apostles back in John chapter 6, uh, sorry, when a bunch of followers of Christ, disciples, they left Jesus because of his teaching. And Jesus turned and said to his closer disciples, would you like to leave also? And Peter said, to whom shall we go, Lord? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Peter recognized that there was no life, there was no hope for him outside of Jesus. That's why it crushed him so bad when he betrayed Jesus, when he denied him. Peter knows there's nowhere else for him. There's nothing else for him. He has no ambition but to follow Jesus Christ. And friends, whether or not you are in ministry 
in a visible way like myself or whether or not you live your life and work your job and do ministry in your friendships and family, we can all have the same commitment to follow Christ, the same ambition to follow and believe and love people in His name. We can have the exact same ambition as Peter even though we have different jobs than him. So that's number two is that we can answer and we should. And number three is kind of the content of what we should say. It is the message. Number three is that Christ is unstoppable and He is at the center. He is at the center of the opposition to the gospel. It it will not be our intellect. It will not be our uh, gathering power or our social activism. But the opposition to the gospel will be answered by the message and work of Jesus Christ. The characters that are named are key to this section. Caiaphas and Annas. Does anybody remember where we saw them in the Gospel of John? In the trial. This was the high priest and his father-in-law who were both kind of working together. The high priest kind of brought his father-in-law out of retirement to work on this case with him. To help condemn Jesus Christ. The high priest were at the very center of the desire and mission to see Christ crucified. They are named by name so that we will know these were the men whose personal ambition it was to kill and crucify Jesus Christ. John chapter 18 lays it out so clearly. Caiaphas and Annas. It was their hatred. It was their pride. It was their strategy to kill Jesus Christ. They said, because it is expedient for one man to die so that a whole nation will be preserved. They thought Christ is going to overthrow Israel He's going to wreck our system as we know it. And and we're all going to be lost if Jesus Christ gets to be popular any more than he has. And so their strategy is to preserve Israel. To preserve their national heritage in the way that they had made it serve them. And that, that it had made them look good and that they had control over. That's going to be very key. Now keep in mind Matthew chapter 21. Caiaphas and Annas, desiring to protect Israel, to keep it for themselves, crucifying the Son of God. So when Peter accused them, whom you crucified, there in verse 10, it was personally true for them. He was looking at the family of the high priest. Not only the high priest and his father-in-law who committed the act, but the family members. He was accusing them face to face and it was personally true of them unlike the people who might have been in the crowd yelling crucify him, crucify him. It was these men who actually brought Jesus to the Roman court saying you must crucify him. Their goal was to end the disturbance that Jesus was causing to their sense of authority and control. Now how ironic is it that in their very temple, by the name of Jesus Christ, is this great disturbance and revival breaking out. They thought they could silence Christ. They thought he would be out of the picture and that they could continue on in their little kingdom of self-serving authority. The reign and work of Christ is once again impeding and imposing itself against hard-hearted Israel. The reign of Christ is once again pressuring and cracking 
the systems which were opposed to him. And so Peter brings up this passage. He says, You crucified him, and God raised him from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. That ancient prophecy in, in Psalm 118 is talking about you. The stone which the builders rejected. The builders are supposed to be God's people. The builders are supposed to be the ones that God has employed to help build his kingdom. But the stone came to the builders and the builders rejected it. Rejected it. And what became of that stone? It has become the cornerstone. And he translated that into spiritual language. That means, in verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what it means to be the cornerstone. The saving work of God has been concentrated and invested and solely kept in this one stone. In this one act of God is all the promises of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There are many other names given, but none from heaven and none others, no others by which we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ alone who has become the cornerstone. I want to talk just a little bit more about this because Psalm 118 is quoted here and it's not the first time in the New Testament that this psalm has been quoted. Psalm 118 was written, scholars think, around the time, if you know anything about Jewish history, they were taken away from their land, taken captive by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? They were taken away for 70 years and then and then Babylon was defeated by Persia because Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was a wicked, blaspheming king and he was destroyed by the Persians. And the Persians, when they came in, they read God's law and they realized that there was a prophecy that God's people were going to rebuild the temple. And so the king of Persia commissions Nehemiah and says, I'm supposed to let you go build your temple. And so they go do that. They build the wall and, and God's people come back and it never returned to its full glory at that time. But scholars believe that this psalm about salvation, this joyful psalm that we just read, talks about God disciplining severely but not giving us over to death. That's what that's about. It's about the captivity but not full destruction. It's about a time of discipline and returning to God's grace. And they come back and they're singing in the, in the temple... And they're rejoicing in God. And in that, they sing this part about the cornerstone. Because at the time, the cornerstone of God's work was Israel. It was God's work on the world. It was his nation. He, was, he gave them a law. He cared for them. He fought battles for them. He disciplined them. He loved them. He kept them safe. They were God's people. They were God's cornerstone. And they were taken into captivity. And they were embarrassed. And they were diminished. And when they came back, they said, Ah, this nation which has been rejected is now the cornerstone. They thought, Ah, we're the cornerstone again. We are God's people again. God's work is being built upon us. And when Jesus comes, He speaks in Matthew chapter 1 and He says, Have you never read the Scriptures? 
but the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And anyone who falls on this stone will be broken. Meaning if you come to Christ, you will be humbled. But if you remain hard, this stone will fall and crush you to pieces. One way or another, all humanity will come into contact with this stone. There is no other name given under heaven by which men are saved. Every person will come into contact with this stone, now or later. And you will either fall on Christ and be saved, or He will fall on you and crush you. There is no way around this cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the work of God. Matthew chapter 21. He was the rejected son of the vineyard owner. He is the cornerstone, not Israel. And so there's a narrowness to the gospel here. Christ is the unstoppable center of the gospel and there is a narrowness there. And the narrowness of the gospel demands clarity and boldness in the face of the harshest opposition. Let me say that again. The narrowness of the gospel demands clarity. It demands clear proclamation. It demands boldness. If we are unclear about the gospel, then we have not presented the gospel. Christ is the cornerstone. Church, we must fall on that. If Christ is not the only name under heaven by which men are saved, then why do we worship Christ? Why do we give our lives to Him? Why do we worship as if He's everything? Because He's the cornerstone. And friends, there is no other message for some other people in other cultures or other backgrounds. Christ is the same for all men and women. He is the Savior. And so what's the principle here? Don't change the message. Christ himself, his character, his nature, his work, his power, and his authority must be the center of our message. Must be the center of our message. Even when opposition comes, Peter sticks to the story. What's the result? Number four, the opposition is silenced. Verses 13 to 18. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Oh, this sounds so much like when they were conferring before Jesus was killed. When should we arrest him? We don't want to do it when everyone's around because everyone seems to believe in this guy. So we can't, we can't do it when people are watching. That's how sin operates. It operates in the dark and in secret and behind, away from the truth. So God's people filled with the Spirit and full of the truth, which is matchless, confront these guys and they have nothing to say. How did these men learn to speak like this? How did these uneducated men learn to speak with such boldness in, in our presence? Judaism was a very scholarly, intimidating religion. Very fine, very finesse, very careful. Dietary, cleanliness laws, sexuality laws. It was very carefully laid out. It was a scholarly religion. And rightfully so. 
And how did these uneducated fishermen come and confront this massive, well-established religion and leave them speechless? Because they proclaimed Christ. They proclaimed the truth against which there's no reasonable opposition. There's no reasonable rebuttal to the gospel of Christ. They were witnesses to it. They saw it. They have this healed dude standing right beside them. Hard to deny that. Hard to deny. If Christ is the one who did that, then he must not still be dead. See, all of the doors are closing in on the leaders. There is nothing, there's no escape route for them. The opposition is silence. And I love Jesus again. He was asked the same type of questions. In John 7, when Jesus was teaching, they said about him, How is this man teaching since he has no learning? They said it of Christ. How is this uneducated man teaching so well? This is great comfort to me, who I, who have, most of you are much more educated than me. And education is important, and, and I don't in any way want to lead an anti-education tirade whatsoever. But isn't it amazing that God equips and fills his people with such boldness and such truth that there is an, there's an uncomparable reality to education? There is obviously something that just formal education cannot give you when it comes to living for Christ. And guess what? That's free. No OSAP needed. So get your education and get trained and do what God would have you do and, and God bless you in that. But recognize that you must also be in the school of Christ. Seek His Word. Yield to His Spirit. Be available for these opportunities and speak boldly because people who perceive your interaction with them will say, how did they learn this at Algonquin College? How did they learn this in the arts program at U of T? They couldn't have because Christ is our educator. He is our tutor. He is our teacher and he has given us the helper. Isn't that amazing? So they only have one door, these leaders. They resort to what? Bullying and intimidation because they have no response against it and they're so hard-hearted. Isn't this sad? Don't hate the leaders. Think of how sad this is. Instead of seeing the healed man, hearing the testimony, hearing that there's an opportunity to be saved, they just bully them. They called them, verse 18, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They just throw the law down. They just put their foot down. They say, then no more teaching. No more. And Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. You claim to be God's servants. So you decide whether or not we should obey God or you. Peter is just driving this sword home. Hey, you're the, men of, you're the men of God. Why don't you tell me? Is it right to obey you or is it right to obey God? Why don't you go check your texts and find out the answer to that question? Because God has sent us here and God is at work. So you tell me who's in charge. This, is, this must be infuriating for the leaders. How dare you embarrass us? Those who do not fall on Christ will be crushed when Christ falls on them. They warn the disciples. They say, don't do this. Don't preach. 
Here's what I love. Jesus has already stripped out the authority from that command. He has already taken the engine out of that car. The ignition does not respond when the Jewish leaders go to charge and and exercise their authority over John and Peter. There is no gas in the tank. Jesus has already said, God will take away the vineyard and he will give it to others. You guys are hanging out in an abandoned building. God has left. He's not with you. You rejected his son and instead of coming to him in repentance, you have remained hard-hearted. And the, and the people who were listening to that parable in Matthew chapter 1 said themselves, he will put those wretches to a miserable end. And he will give the kingdom to somebody else. Because that's normal. If you beat the servants and kill the son, why would you get rewarded? The vineyard owner is going to come and he's going to change things up. And so they charge the disciples, don't go preaching. And they're standing there with no authority. They've been stripped of their pride and prestige. God has moved on. He has abandoned their authority. He has left the building. So what's the principle? That when you proclaim Christ and his unstoppable kingdom, you can take confidence in the message. Because if you proclaim the truth, there is no reasonable opposition. People might flounder and flop and rail and foam at the mouth against you, but it does not mean they have a reasonable response to the gospel. John later wrote, the same John who was here later wrote a book and he said, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, what we have touched, we proclaim to you. This same idea that we can't help but say these things. Remember, Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threaten them, they're just foaming at the mouth. They're just grasping here for some kind of control and they're losing it. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. Peter says, we cannot speak of that which we have seen and heard. And John later writes that in his own letter to the church in First John. He says, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, we proclaim to you. I'm so thankful for the boldness of those witnesses because that is what became our scriptures. The witness to Christ and the ministry of the Spirit has become to us the testimony of salvation. Paul wrote to the Colossians, you believed in the word that was preached to you. You accepted the word. That is how we believe. We believe because of the testimony of the witness. It's very ordinary. Maybe you've had a dream where some flaming thing appeared to you and gave you the gospel. And, but most of the time, it's just a word from somebody's mouth speaking to you. It's just the word. It's just witness. And Peter and John say, we can't help but speak of what we have heard. So number four, the opposition is silenced. Number five, exhortation is keep bringing the heat. The disciples evaluate the command. They evaluate the threat. And they now, in their minds, are recalling the Great Commission where Jesus said, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, except for the temple authority. They're still pretty intense. No. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, so go and subdue and teach and proclaim in my name. 
all things will be under submission to Christ. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he said, he cursed a fig tree, and they were talking, wow, that's so amazing. And he said, look at that mountain. It will be cast into the sea. If you speak to that mountain, it will be cast into the sea. And sometimes we think, oh, God's going to cast our mountains into the sea. You know what Jesus was looking at when he said this mountain? It was the temple mount. He was looking at the Jewish temple, saying this opposition to the gospel will be cast into the sea. It will not stand against the gospel. It will not stand. So keep bringing the heat. Recall the great commission that all authority under heaven and earth belongs to Christ. Not men. Not opposition. Not politicians. Any authority that we come up against on earth is delegated authority. It's delegated. The ultimate authority belongs to Jesus Christ. And so when you are met with opposition, recognize that theirs is a mediated, delegated authority and it's being abused. And in the name of Jesus Christ, exercise His authority. For we are ambassadors for Him. Now, we need to recognize that our opposition is theological. It's not violent. It's not rude. It's not unkind. It's theological. Our opposition is theological. It is, in some ways, intellectual, but truth enters the mind and changes the heart and the, the body. But that is our opposition. That is how we frame our opposition. It's through the ministry of the word and the truth that we speak. Now, the solution that we find in our text, the resolution, if you will, in our text, is not that Peter and John said, okay, these guys are pretty mad. Uh, let's just see if we can sort of soften it a little bit so that we can win their respect. And maybe in that we can preach them again. That's not where the solution lies. The solution lies not in finding a compromise or acceptable common ground, but to ignore opposition and obey, obey and glorify God. That's the solution for the apostles. The solution is to obey and glorify Jesus Christ. Not to change the message one iota, no matter what the culture says. We don't accommodate or synchronize with the world. Why? Because they can only find peace if we preach the true gospel. They can only find peace if they know the name of Christ in Him crucified and resurrected. And so we keep bringing it. Peter and John say, we can't help it. We're just going to keep going and you do to us what you think you have to do. The principle there is that our work is authority driven. Who is in charge and why do we do what we do? It's very easy to perceive that the opposition to Christian faith in this, in this world is too much. It's too overwhelming. It, it's too great. It's too threatening. It's too intimidating. But who actually has the authority? It's Christ. It is Christ. And you, my friends, have the authority of Christ to proclaim His reign, to proclaim His Lordship, to call men and women come to him and repent and check out the result verse 22 for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old and because of that all the people were praising God for what had happened all the people were praising God we would love to see a revival wouldn't we we would love to see 
church is overflowing. People just like, oh, that church is full. We got to go to the one down the road. Wouldn't you love to see that either in your university classroom? I mean, imagine you had a huge group of friends to go with, you know, down to church on a Sunday morning. You had to rent a bus or something. We all want to see churches overflowing. We all want to see revival take place. But how does it happen? It happens in the face of opposition. God works despite opposition. It's not one or the other. God's message overcomes, but through the work of his people. Through the work of his people. So we want to see this happen. We do. We pray God brings revival. But we must also recognize these five principles that Christ the unstoppable must be proclaimed. The real gospel offers real transformation and real revival. It's all legitimate, genuine stuff. And God is the one who's behind it. And it begins with a truthful witness to his world. And so, this is a very much like action-driven, isn't it? It's a very action-driven message. And not not all of us always feel action-driven, do we? Sometimes it's like, I just made my life needs to get in order. And you know what? That is part of the gospel message as well. That by His Spirit, you are filled with His nature and His character. And He is at work in you to equip you, to mold you, to ready you for these good works. And so this is not a message of condemnation. Look how inactive you are or I am. Because we all fall short. We will fall short the entire way through the Bible for the history of this church. Great. It's not a condemning message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of confidence. And it's a message, hopefully, preparing us for opportunities that will come. Don't look back on your performance. That's gone. You messed up yesterday. So did I. Who cares? That's done. Let's go forward together as a church, seeking and anticipating God's work and also being ready to be His witnesses. And again, this does not mean a crusade. It just means living your life in public. This whole thing got started because Peter and John were just going up to the temple to pray. They did not have a sermon prepared or plans to preach. They did not have pamphlets ready to hand out or tracts. They did not have a bunch of packed sandwiches. We're going to hand these out to the homeless and everyone's going to turn to Christ. They had no plans for evangelism that morning so far as the text tells us. This whole thing began. The last four sermons began because... Paul, Peter, and John were just trying to pray to Jesus. They were just going to pray. Let's not forget that. In the ordinary things that you set your mind to do to glorify Christ, He will bring you opportunity and He will prepare you for it. But be filled with the Spirit and be ready and seek Him and and, um, love His church because it's hard to do when you're on your own. It's harder to do when you feel all alone. So don't, um, you're all here, so I'm already preaching to the choir, but do this together as a church because we can help each other. We can talk about the ways God is working and that's an exciting reality. So uh, super thankful for this text and um, thankful for what it it shows us about God's great work in, in the face of opposition. Let's pray.